musicians, we don't think of our, ourselves as harmful people. We think of ourselves as the cultural ambassadors and peacemakers. We reach across the aisle. Your attention is on us because we're doing something really beautiful and inspiring. And then to realize we have to harm the planet in order to deliver what we do, that is a hard, hard view to adopt. That's the composer Gabriela Lena Frank, who lives on a farm in Boonville, Northern California, where she's been dealing firsthand with the impact of climate change. Gabriela is an activist on multiple fronts. She's working to make the classical music world both more inclusive and much less detrimental to the environment. Welcome to Parlando, Musical Matters, a podcast for Classical Voice North America. I'm Vivian Schweitzer, and for this episode, I spoke with Gabriella about her work as an environmental activist, her multicultural heritage, and life as a composer with significant hearing loss. Gabriella is of Peruvian, Chinese, Lithuanian, and Jewish ancestry, and her music has been deeply influenced by her Peruvian heritage. We'll hear some of that music on the show. Do you think there will come a time in the classical music world, which is so fixated on, for example, star soloists who are being flown in from all over the world? Do you think things will evolve to the point that even, say, the New York Philharmonic could use a local musician instead of flying in someone from 5,000 miles away? I do, in part, because the young musicians, say, 23, 24 and under, especially the teenagers. They're already saying they're not going to have kids. They're already more vegan than we are. And they're already saying they're going to boycott concerts that were mm-hmm. done in which somebody flew in. It was difficult to imagine our lives without flying. And we're doing it at my academy. We yeah. fundraise and we have a budget for green rail travel. And we're paying our artists extra for the extra mm-hmm. time it takes. And we found out that a lot of them actually like rail travel. I was reading that using platforms like Spotify actually take up a huge amount of energy, which I hadn't really thought about. And now it seems obvious, but there's so much in our lives that we don't really think about. When I was thinking right before the pandemic, I was saying we need to go more virtual and do a hybrid. I didn't even know what Zoom was. I think the steps we have to take towards green air travel are more daunting and challenging than the steps that are needed for sustainable cloud services and streaming services. Gabriella's hearing loss was detected by a teacher when she was four years old. Since childhood, she's been candid about her disability and credits her supportive family with helping her adjust and flourish from an early age. There are even some advantages, she says, to being a partially deaf composer. I do know a number of musicians with hearing loss. I'm not sure they want to go public with it. I've gone to six or seven musicians with hearing loss over my Mm -hmm. life. I've gone with them to the hearing aid technician to get fitted because they were so afraid of the process and wanted to keep it really quiet. Again, mm-hmm. because of shame and needing that perfection, not just at the keyboard, but also in your, your body, your physical being. Was there ever a time where you thought about keeping your hearing loss private or was it always out in the open? 
it was out in the open before I decided to become a professional musician. I was already kind of almost um, proud that I had such an open, vibrant, active life, even though I have a significant hearing loss. And my parents helped me with it. It's like when you see somebody that has a, they have visible disability and they just seem so cool with it. Like they're so healthy about it. And yeah, let me take off my foot here. You know, and they show you that it's (laughs) complicated and they just can make a joke about it. And they seem like it's not a defense mechanism. They really processed it probably Mm -hmm. because they had a good family. And, and I had that, I had that kind of support system for it so that when the inevitable challenges did come up, it became more of an issue in the professional world when I really didn't have to strategize to hear. So for instance, when I started getting symphonic work and the conductor is so far away on the stage and I can hear the music just fine, but I have a harder time hearing voices. So what I'll do is I'll often talk to the assistant conductor to sit next to me and just relay everything. And then the assistant conductor will often lean in to like whisper in my ear and I say, no, 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 I'll back away and I'll say, I need to see your face because I do lip read. That really helps, especially in the dark. If it's a darkened mm-hmm. theater, I need a little extra help. And I've gotten used to just putting it out there from the very beginning. And I think by being very matter of fact about it, it hasn't been an issue. I've certainly heard stories of singers who've had, you know, problems with their vocal cords or throat or whatever. And uh, yeah, they felt huge pressure to keep it a top secret so that nobody judges their yeah, capabilities. And in those cases, I'm guessing most of the time that was an injury and not a disability that they were born with. Yeah, that's or, true. Probably an injury. In which case their identity is around able-bodiedness. And I don't know what it's like to have normal hearing. And there are advantages. I like working in silence. To me, not being able to turn your ears off is like not being able to close your eyes. Imagine if you had sight on all the time. And it's kind of horrifying to me to not ever be able to really easily get away. All I have to do is turn these off, my hearing aids, or just take them out. And I'm in 97% silence. In my last year of grad school, I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disorder. That affects your thyroid. I got over that fairly well with some minor lifelong consequences. And I take uh, a medicine every day that I need in order to survive. But the second stage of it, a couple years later, affected my eyesight. And so my immune system was essentially attacking the eye muscles that hold your eyeballs in the sockets. And it was affecting my eyesight. Mm -hmm. And so I was losing eyesight. It was very painful. I was losing eye mobility. So I'm playing piano. I couldn't get my eyes to careen over to the left, careen over to the right, to see the high notes and the low notes. I was losing my identity as a piano. I always valued my ability to be super accurate. Like I can grab a quick look and hit an octave. I couldn't do that anymore. The feeling of shame, the lack of perfection went so deep. And I couldn't lip read so well. So then I felt hearing impaired, really, for the first time in my life. 
And I realized that, gosh, my eyes and my ears, I use my eyes, everything, something falls off the table. I see the sound. I don't just hear it. I mean, I, wow. I also kept it from people, just like the singer with the vocal cord problems. And I learned new things about myself, all the ways that I wasn't as strong and perfect as I thought. But then I found a lot of strength. When you're composing, do you still often do it in complete silence? And is that something you've always done? Well, when I first started composing, I needed the piano, like a lot of composers coming out, especially being a pianist. So my violin music had a big piano accent, and then my accent got better as I got really comfortable with strings. It's the, it's the family that I'm most comfortable with outside of the piano. And next, interesting enough, would be percussion and in the woodwinds and Brasses are still very foreign to me. I like for them, but I like rather safely for them. In the early years, I had to force myself. I wanted to develop my inner ear. Because I have perfect pitch, I, I know what the exact pitch is. But an ear, ear, inner ear is much more than just knowing the pitch. It's like tasting something in your head and being able to taste all the particulars. And maybe you're going to prepare that carrot in a way that you have never prepared it. And you can guess at what the flavor would be and the texture would be. That's composing. Do you think the woman composer category needs to go away? I don't think it needs to go away. I mean, Mm -hmm. to me, that's like saying, that's like a string player saying, I'm not going to tell you exactly what instrument I play because I don't want to specifically identify as violin. No, because you're going to think I'm like a prima donna and I always want to play first violin parts. I'm just going to say I'm a string player. And I would like to know if that person is a violinist as opposed to a violist. It's not that politicized to mm-hmm. identify yourself as a violinist over a violist and just say, I'm just a string player. It's all I want to be known as. <laughs> yeah. So we have politicized it so that it causes some angst you know, by those that are scared to identify themselves that way and by those that don't want to know because they feel like they're being lectured to uh, about what it's like to be a woman and, and oppressed and saying, I don't want to hear any more oppressed women stories and just want to go to, to a music concert to escape. I would like to be able to say, well, I'm a woman 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> I am a woman composer <laughs> and I'm a mixed race composer. I'm a disabled composer. And, and if you don't want to know those things, you have to embrace your own listening experience. Don't read a program note. Don't look at the picture in the, in the brochure. so many influences in your music that are directly part of your heritage when you're teaching young composers like what guidelines do you give them if they want to use music from cultures that aren't theirs there's so much talk these days about cultural appropriation you have to look to yourself about what is exploitive and what's not i started looking around at my peers or other composers that were established and what they were doing and 
many times there are things that I was just instinctively uncomfortable with. I could, I did not have the wherewithal or the experience to articulate why. There was just something I was uncomfortable with, and I would not do those things. Then I did some things that I was uncomfortable with, and I yanked those pieces. What kind of topics do you not feel comfortable talking about yet or exploring in your music? One that I have seen addressed by other composers that I'm careful about are topics around terrorism Mm -hmm. and terrorism in another country. And there are a few different layers of difficulty there. One is, how would the people that suffered in that terrorist movement, a terrorist attack, feel to find on the internet your symphony about it, and they know you never talked to them. They know you got a handsome commission fee. They know that you are seen as like a savior or a great cultural witness. You benefit that this is what your life was for. Career benefit. There's something really distasteful about that. Now, as cultural witnesses, there are difficult things that we should be able to talk about, but are we the ones? So there are things like that, say, in the country of Peru, that I'm very careful about. I do have one early piece that is tangentially about Sendero Luminoso, the shining path, which is unfortunately coming back to life again in some parts of Peru, and it's really disturbing. The piece is about a dream that I used to have about my mom running from danger and women that look like my mom. My mom's beautiful. And the point being that here I am, totally safe, daughter of an immigrant, and this terrorist movement managed to come put its fingers into my life too. So I finally found my angle in. I haven't found another angle in to talking about this that doesn't feel like I'm participating in cultural appropriation or doing something that is inappropriate. It's a question of power, power and benefit. I was reading that you'd worked with uh, deaf African-American students in Detroit who rap in sign language. Sounds like a really fascinating project. How did that come about? Oh, it was when I was composing Revenants of Detroit Symphony. The fact that there were so many at this one high school, it was a group of like 12, 15 of them. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. I was kind of blown away. Some of them were coming from families that maybe didn't have anybody that went to college and that made a big difference in our family. My dad very much encouraged us from the time we were little like to, to say the word doctorate. So that helped me transcend the limits on my body that, that I had because of, of my hearing loss. And so some of these kids had that and some didn't. Uh, so that was a really moving experience. So through my academy, which is a nonprofit I founded, and we mm-hmm. literally do it out of my house where I live now in Boonville, California, we're about to start an after-school music program at this tiny high school. And two of my alums will come and live in Boonville in our second house for four months. They will teach eight hours a week in return for you know, a stipend and a car and all expenses pay- paid and can work on our own work for the rest of the time. We'll do this every semester. And it's a very modestly funded high school. It's a rural school, or mostly Latino. They're mostly the children of the local agricultural workers. And so because I can go down the hill and pop into this 
program several times a week, that's honestly going to have more impact than when I'm doing volunteer work or doing outreach work as a guest. So you founded the Gabriella Lena Frank Creative Academy Music to foster diverse compositional voices. And it seems that you really encourage your mentees to follow your example as a volunteer and activist. How do you think the music industry overall can benefit from this approach? It doesn't seem like it's valuable when you're in school and impressionable and everybody's telling you to go for a competition, not to go down the block and teach somebody first position on violin or something that was held up as every bit as prestigious and wonderful as winning a competition. I think we would be a very different industry now. So I'm almost 50 now, and it's taken this long before I finally devised my own way of having a more steady presence as a a citizen within Mm -hmm. art. Sometimes young voices coming out of, say, the conservatory are really mindful about not failing. I think that's another kind of self-analysis the industry might want to conduct at some point, saying this emphasis on perfection leads to yet a perfect imperfection of soul. A perfect imperfection of soul. Wow, what a great description from composer Gabriella Lena Frank. Thanks for listening to Parlando Musical Matters. I'm Vivian Schweitzer, and I'll be back soon with another episode for Classical Voice North America. Mm-hmm.